All right, everyone. Welcome once again to How to Pakistan, the podcast with uh, me and Musharraf Zaidi. Sir, good to have you. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamualaikum to everyone. Uh, great to, as always, be here. Getting uh, some some good, some fair feedback. Yes, it's uh, quite encouraging, and uh, we're also enjoying this. And we thought we'd just quickly open with what the program's about today. We have something that's going out in the press these days. It's a raging debate by you know really four very respected, very eloquent and incisive thinkers. That's Faisal Naqvi, that's Babar Sitar, Afia Sherbano, and Salman Akram Raja. So if you want to just give a quick summation of why we're doing this and what the show is about today. Well, so it all started on the 10th of January when Faisal Naqvi, who's a lawyer, a Supreme Court lawyer, really very highly educated, a dear friend, just a fabulous guy, and he wrote a piece in which he, I think it's kind of like this think piece. It was like a hot air balloon, like a test balloon that he sent out to see basically what other people thought and, uh, and how other people think. Um, and of course, he's gotten a quite robust response uh, for, that, for that experiment. But I think it was basically, an, the idea was, we have this thing called the Federal Shariat Court. And I, I don't know what drove him to write it. I think that's one of the things that we'll ask. But basically... It's about the utility of the Shariat court, uh, or not so much the utility, but whether or not the Shariat court should exist, shouldn't exist. What does it mean for people to post an opinion in a newspaper that says that, actually, maybe we shouldn't be so upset about the Shariat court because maybe it's had some positive uh, externalities. Salman Akram Raja, who's a phenomenal lawyer, phenomenal lawyer, uh, somebody that I've worked with in the past, somebody that you know I just have enormous respect for. Again, very highly educated, really articulate. And one of the few people who can be as lethal in Urdu as he can be in English. Right. Really fine, fine uh, lawyer. He was quite upset by the piece and he, he wrote a rebuttal. And uh, so it started on the 10th of January and then I think there was a piece on the 16th and, you know, a rebuttal. And then there was a counter rebuttal by Faisal. So that's two pieces by Faisal now and one by Salman. And then a few days ago, Afia Sherbano, who's, uh, you know, very uh, eminent feminist and, and a thinker and a public intellectual, she wrote a piece on the 27th of January in which she sort of said, this is like the gift of Zia that keeps giving. And then just today, uh, we're recording this show on Saturday, the 30th of January, Babar Sattar, who again, people will know from television, uh, he's also a Supreme Court lawyer, really, really fine man, a very good friend as well. And he also sort of went after Faisal and said, like, this isn't cool. But I think what Babar's tried to do is expand the debate now to sort of the cause of liberalism in Pakistan and, and what, what this debate means and reflects and sort of, you know, how it impacts that cause. Okay, so what we're going to have today is we're going to be speaking to Afia Sherbano, Salman Akram Raja, and Faisal Nakpi. We're going to go through each of what they're saying and trying to understand what's caused all the positions that have been taken, what it means for everyone. And I think, in, at least in terms of sort of a speculative thought exercise, it's been a fascinating read over this past month. This whole thing about, you know, what could have been had these institutions not existed, and what it means for a lot of people who are arguing that, you know, that exercise itself is an exercise in futility because you're doing it after a severe defeat in some ways. So I think, you know, the positions are there. What does it really mean? I think it'll be quite exciting to understand. Uh, absolutely. I think one thing that we owe our viewers is to, is to, is to keep it light because, yeah. you know, we're, I think we're really interested in having these kinds of conversations. And demonstrating the possibility of the Pakistani conversation as being civil and fun, <laughs> being civil and fun, 
but also being but full of nine o'clock on TV. I need them fighting. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if the smarter viewers can. I keep saying viewers, listeners, yeah, listeners. Guess, yeah. Yes, um, we should do a video one too. We'll yeah. try that. Uh, but look, uh... opened <laughs> me. <laughs> I need an anchor who's needling all three guests and so let's see how well uh, we can or can't uh, needle these people and I think we'll begin by taking on Afia Sherbano yes and I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation and then we're going to get Salmana Kunuraja and that's going to be a fascinating conversation. And then we'll we'll ask Fessel Nakfi what the hell he was thinking with all this. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right. So we're just going to wait till we get uh, Afia online. Fantastic. In the meantime, we should play this. And we're back once again. We have with us Afia Sherbano. We're really grateful for you taking the time out. And we'd love to discuss you know, your recent article and the issue that's been sort of rebounding in the press and <laughs> expanding with new sets of players and new sets of opinions. Mm-hmm, yes, so it should be. Well, it, it yeah. blew, you know, it's really blowing up with, with Babar Sattar entering the fray. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think uh, w- one thing that I must say is it's really great to have you on the show because you are quite rightly and quite poignantly our first female uh, yeah, guest. Yeah, that I believe. That I believe, absolutely. So, <laughs> no surprises. So, so welcome. Yeah. Now, let's talk about this thing because we don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want to waste time. We, Can I know. start with a quick question? Sure. Afia, I, what I'm wondering is, and uh, just correct us on this. So there's been a series of four people who've been writing a total of five articles. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering is that, does the arguments posed by Salman Akram Raja on this yourself and Babur Sitar, does that make you sort of uh, one camp of arguments? No, do you, do no, you, do you see a thread no. of similarity between the three? There, there's a thread of similarity in the, it's, it's more of a continuity. I say, look, the, the point, the bigger point is that this is a long overdue conversation, right? And this is kind of an interrupted conversation because uh, you, I, lots of other people have had um, opinions on what I would call broadly competing institutions, right? Whether it is about um, madrasas versus schools or... Wait, jingas. before you... Sorry, mm-hmm. uh, sorry to cut, cut in, Afia. Before mm-hmm. you continue, just define what this conversation is for our viewers who are entering this cold, who maybe haven't read any of this and, and mm-hmm. don't know what the debate is. What mm-hmm. is the conversation that you're referring to? So this is essentially on whether there is a competitive... Uh, legal regimes in the country, which we know there are. But there are also certain institutions that have been layered one on top of the other. And they, what I'm arguing is that they, that they become competitive. Now, what Faisal Nakvi suggested in his original article is that actually it's not competitive, uh, but the federal Sharia court specifically, what he wrote on, can exist almost in isolation or as a silo, as I defined it, um, and can run parallel and allow us the others who don't have to resort to or don't appeal to the federal Sharia court can go to other lay courts, if you like, or the regular courts that he calls them. And really, this is not a bad thing to have a two-track, you know, sort of um, legal process taking place. Now, this became problematic for Salman on a legal, legal-specific uh, front. For me, it became important, Musharraf, because it has sociological implications. You know, it's not an absentia. Institutions don't run parallel in some vacuum. And Babur came in back, brought the legal aspect in, but also discussed its impact on what it says about us when we make these kind of proposals. 
So in that perspective, what I'm arguing is that it's a long overdue conversation because we've never settled this idea about competing institutions. Um, and that's why I bring in the example of madrasas and schools because you and I have had that argument or debate. There are two views on it. Should we have madrasas and schools? Should we abolish all madrasas and every kid should go into school? Should we have jirgas which are very effective at the communal level? Uh, or should we remove all jirgas because they are oppressive and, um, you know, sort of uh, patriarchal? And we should only look at the lay course, a kind of a streamlining. And the more important conversation regarding the four of us is whether Islamic law can coexist and co-reside with uh, post-colonial uh, pre-Zia uh, Pakistan law. And even if the two legal, legal regimes can coexist, can institutions that support or respond to these laws uh, and where we appeal our cases, should and can they coexist? That is, the, I think, the, the main crux of the deeper conversation that needs to be had. So, so um, Fasi, what do you think? I mean, do you think that we can have... First of all, let's get some idea. Like, let's put our ideological cards on the table. Yeah, okay. if you don't mind. Okay. Like for me, I think that the state is a state, and if you're going to have a state, it has to be a state that's defined in a certain way. And so, if you're going to have courts, then you can only have one kind of court, and there has mm -hmm. to be one ultimate court, and that's a supreme court. So, mm -hmm. conceptually, for me, mm -hmm. having Supreme Courts that aren't the Supreme Court, which is what mm -hmm. the Federal Sharia Court is, mm -hmm. or having a district court that isn't the only district court, like there's also a jirga like next door, that seems to be a recipe for destroying the unity and the coherence of the state. And for me, the state is sacrosanct. Mm -hmm. So that's my position. Fasi, what, what is yours? I mean, I think what I'm thinking about is Generally, what comes to mind is Egypt in some ways, and some parts of the Arab Spring, where some of the liberals have regretted over time of how they didn't engage with certain forces, and some opportunistic forces, be they military dictatorships or remnants of a military dictatorship. And I found the idea of a pressure valve interesting because in some ways, and this may be just an assessment of mine, is that I've seen that this society is inevitably going towards more and more stricter. They need more evidence Wait, of superficial... Just the citizens, the population, no, right? But aren't you a citizen? I am, I am, but I see So is it they or is it we? Okay, but I... I no, but I think that... So I think that betrays something, right? It does, it does. And what I, I, I think is that, you know, one of the parts in... Uh, what we need to accept is, like, when you look at opinion polling consistently, it's a conservative country. And if you frame any question in terms of religion, yeah. Even if you have a secular idea, yeah. you find so many people wanting you to rebrand it for it mm -hmm. to become acceptable. So, I, mm -hmm. so my concern is I fall into what maybe Babar says is that those kind of liberals who are arguing from a position where it really becomes one between a centrist and what's moving towards the right, because I see the practical implications as slightly different. I've always been a practum, yes. pr pragmatic okay, so centrist, then, okay. but Afia, so what's yes, your, yeah. what's your so take? Musharraf, take, take this, let's get into it now a bit. Huh? So for example, Riba, okay, which is one of the cases in point, Riba, for you, for Faisal Nakwi, maybe for Ansar Abbasi, whoever, is perhaps, I'm not suggesting you, but I'm just saying for one group of people, is perhaps a religious issue, if you like. It, it is very much for me. Okay, now... 
On the other hand, for me, for Salman, for others, it's an economic issue. For okay? me too. All oh, I'm suggesting, okay. yeah, yeah, I'm suggesting yeah. this is when, this is the kind of debate we need to get into. And this is my objection to Pestel saying that he was not case specific, it was more speculative, his notion, which is fine. Now, when you have two sides that have to go into the federal Sharia court, the I can, once I enter the federal Sharia court, or Salman enters it, we can no longer make it about an economic issue. There, the site, the location, by definition, you can only argue within the religious framework to either defend or to uh, negate the, the kind of petition that is being... Uh, but you can't move, you can't appeal to universal treaties. I mean, you can, but not convincingly. Can I There's just interrupt? No... Can, let me interrupt, uh, Afia. Here's my sort of... This is where I start to lose uh, sort of clarity in, in the conversation. You asked me, you know, where am I on river? For me, it's a religious issue. It's a spiritual issue, right? But you didn't ask me what my sort of, you know, pragmatic centrist solution was. My pragmatic centrist solution is global and universal. And that is that I will, to the best of my you ability... You want a city card, basically. No, no, no. I'll just live my life in accordance yeah. with as close as I can to yeah. what I believe to be true. And I don't need either a federal Sharia court or any court to explain what God's message is to me, because uh, that's why God wrote a book. Like so you know, then, then you've answered. Then you've answered the question itself. I mean, basically, what we're saying is we don't want a federal Sharia court that adjudicates on economic issues, even if you consider it a religious issue. But what if now, what if there's some people? So here's the question: What if there's some people who aren't like me, who actually say, you know what? Not only do I want a federal Sharia court, yeah. uh, not only do I want riba free banking for me. But mm -hmm. I want nobody to have riba. Correct. Now, we can say that those people are being unreasonable, but isn't it a good idea, and this is what I think Faisal is saying, isn't it a good idea that those people have somewhere to go to and that that somewhere to go to is and isn't really that powerful to actually no, make... Musharraf, but the point is that uh, you know, to Fasi, you're saying that these binaries don't need of us and them. Sure. But the mm. fact is, you either need an economic system, this is the state bank that is going to this way. It's exactly like in many ways about, you know, Kisat and Diyad or blasphemy or Zina for that matter. What I'm suggesting is, whether you have, when you have parallel systems, whether it's for them or for people who it appeases, these are the arguments and words we use. The fact is, there is going to be conflict. For you to presume or Faisal to say, oh, you can go to that shop and you can get your fatwa there and good luck to you. What nonsense. I mean, of course, there's going to be conflict and contradiction. Ansar Abbasi has been putting this on the front page for 10 years. There's also, <laughs> there is this argument that, you know, just let it lay, lay, lay over there and abeyance mein rahega, and it's going to be suspended and nobody really ever adjudicates. Well, hello, you know, they have adjudicated on, uh, you know, uh, blasphemy, on the death penalty for that, on Kisas and Diyar. And also consider this other side and consider the repercussions on a level that there are two sides that are represented in a court, right? Now, what happens is never mind that, you know, that lawyer who's representing, arguing against the death penalty for blasphemy, arguing against riba, he gets painted as the kafir or the riba lawyer, or I get painted as the free sex woman or the Ahmadi lover or whatever it is. Of course, when you have an institution that, by definition, and it's all is a forum for this kind of discussion, you can't sweep it under the carpet and say this is for them. I'm being, you know, sort of benign and sort of so um, generous that you know you need your little religion. Please go to that madrasa and get a little bit of education. Go to the FSC and get it, or go to the Council of Islamic Ideology and get it. Afia. We can't pretend that this is not going to have uh, implications for all of us. So, Afia, you know, I I understand entirely what you're saying and. I'm just wondering, and again, this is slightly speculative, but mm -hmm. let's say we know that 
in some ways, through the history of our parliament, we found periods where they've capitulated. Correct. And capitulated so severely that there's Correct. a lot that we can blame on Ziavid. I mean, even in recent yeah. terms, whether it was the SWAT agreement, a number of yeah. others. And so I'm wondering is, if, you know, if one knew, and this partly has to do maybe with ideological purity at one level, if mm -hmm. one knew that we could sort of sift out the systems into a unitary form, but that would then maybe have much more laws that are of the same nature, but this time through the democratic process. I mean, mm -hmm. so it's almost an, a liberal's illiberal, you know, desire. I mean, what do you think about that? Look, uh, there could be two things. The stamp of divinity, Fati, I mean, whether it's awarded by an Islamic court or by a dictator or whoever, or something called the Sharia. Or, or a parliament, a joint yeah, Even a parliament, yeah, even okay. a parliament, right? And nobody, because none of us, the three of us who have written on from this perspective, none of us have said, abolish the FSC tomorrow, okay? None mm. of us have said that. I may want that. I, what I'm suggesting is the difference that I have with Fati is that there is a... You mean Faisal? With Faisal, I think. Yeah, yeah. the, the difference is that the process, the methodology of resisting, for me, that is an attempt to secularize as much as possible spaces, grounds, institutions, rather than capitulating and saying, I take my hands off this, this is for them, you know, let them handle it, as if it's not going to become institutionalized, as if judges are not going to become scared and sort of, um, uh, you know, sort of throw their responsibilities off and, and shove it at the FSC. It's, there's a whole chain reaction to when we have this defeatist, what we disguise as pragmatist, pragmatist or realist kind of position. You, when you concede more and more ground, then you will not be able to, as it is, this pretense as if it's an equal battle or an equal, um, you know, struggle is like, is, is completely in, inaccurate. It's not an equal struggle. You're, you've lost, there's not a single case in the FSC which we can hail and say has actually been you know, what, what you fussy want, that kind of engagement, that kind of dialectic coming out or some kind of thing. And if, you know, for that matter, if we're going to have specialized courts, if you like, if we're going to have legal apartheid in that sense, then I want a woman's court, okay? I mm. want a court that takes care of all women's issues, it is right. probably very well, and all this. Where do we draw the line? I think, I think you might be in luck, because I'm pretty sure that the kind, of, the kind of politics we have, the next PPP government would very happily and make you Supreme Court. Sort and of, make, so, and make so, you advisor for it. Okay? Of course, of course, and <laughs> and, and, and we both be job, okay? exactly. We both have jobs, and and and, and everything. No, everything would be. Oh, oh, bhai, could be fit karte na king. Aane, fasi tera bhi tu in hai. You would be my advisor. Okay, <laughs> done. <laughs> here's so here's what it more, sounds like. It's more, you know, Faisal actually didn't. I mean, uh, sort of didn't quite cut the the kind of argument he was making, which is fine. You know, I mean, like I think this idea of a proxy of a parallel of, of legal apartheid or Can whatever I, it is. May I just ask one quick question? Is like one thing that I've noticed, uh, maybe, uh, and I may be wrong here, is that with Faisal and maybe your position, mm -hmm. is Faisal's position sort of acknowledges how weak the liberal position is, mm -hmm. whereas I think that. Uh, maybe from your position, which is like a much more ideologically pure and maybe, uh, you know, very straight and narrow, is that do you believe actually that the liberal position can be achieved through the democratic process and through our existing procedures? I don't think the liberal way will achieve anything because by definition, a liberal just sits on the fence all the time. Hmm. So I'm not really interested in the liberal neutral kind of thing. In fact, Faisal is reinforcing that, you know, for all his pragmatic disguise, Actually, there's a tremendous hope. None of us have missed that, you know, right. in this uh, who he's speaking for. 
it's the kind of liberal position that he's taking that we have to the shades of liberals as well and as a secularist my concern is that he's accommodative uh, almost appeasing as salman said it and babar uses the same kind of argument but my point is that it's uh, you know the the kind of resistance that is required i don't want to give up i don't plan to not you know to to quit fighting but but here's end. here's what it sounds like afia it sounds like you know you already acknowledged quite rightly that this is not a fair fight and that mm-hmm. you know the the it's completely there's disequilibrium and i think that it's it if if one was to be totally neutral and i don't know what that is but i'm just i'm just hypothesizing here and one step back from this it would look like there's three people who are really 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 mad at the fact that things are going this bad and instead of fighting back against let's say ansara bashi somebody that mm-hmm. you mentioned mm-hmm. because you know you can't win that fight you've just all sort of ganged up on sort of fessel nakvi no, who that's not who that's not true at all no, but, ansara bashi is easier to fight you know that's the difference what fasi is saying is actually more accurate than what you are what he's suggesting is that within a community that would ideally want a, a kind of a liberal secular more sort of um, religious free country which includes you as well in in many purviews in the personal in you know whatever different aspects they it this kind of argument sort of is um, almost intellectually lazy actually and ansar is not i know exactly where ansar about is coming from i know it's on his agenda i know how he's going to deal with salman raja and all the rest of it but this is it, what fesy set up is a uh, he didn't raise the stakes high enough it was just concession and defeat and kind of you know to roll back and let things go it doesn't matter if this fight is always unequal uh, i'm just suggesting that one doesn't give up the struggle and just accept you know the md constitution the constitution as what it did the amendments that go wrong the hispa bill that came in he himself admitted that the main court you know could go either way on the hispa bill but that doesn't mean that we don't keep appealing against it or arguing against it fighting mm. the sight of the federal shariat court once you get inside there you're a lost cause musharraf Sure. I wanted Musharraf. I wanted Faisal to prove to me how the federal Sharia court, what Fasi is asking for, how certain legal regimes or institutions, whatever they may be, can actually deliver the kind of uh, hope that you and Faisal and I are looking for. I think. Okay. I think that's a great question for us to pose to him when we take him on yeah. a little okay. bit further in the podcast. Afia, okay, thank you mm-hmm. so much. That was Very phenomenal well and, and, and well done. Afia, well I I don't know, but we've never met. but i've written you fan letters before right and you're a one man club then yes <laughs> and it was great having you on today thank Perfect. you so much thank very much cheers khudafiz all right welcome we're back once again we have with us salman akram raja he's a very noted lawyer in pakistan a brilliant thinker and a writer and uh, Anything else you want to add to that, Musharraf? Well, uh, Salman and I go back a long way. Been not not an admirer from a distance. We've we worked closely together for a very short period of time. Wow, like fifteen, sixteen years ago. Okay. And when I saw his piece, um, you know, the kind of rebuttal to Faisal Nakvi's piece, I I wanted to ask him a question, and I I wanted to wait until this podcast to ask him. Oh, please do. So, Salman Sab, of course, first of all, welcome. Pleasure being here. So मतलब I just wanted to ask you sir मतलब इतना क्या हो गया सर मतलब इतनी नाराजगी क्यों है सर why why are we so upset no 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 there is no question of any personal नाराजगी in this but this is a very important issue okay you see the way we approach this entire discourse has implications and has an impact on society at large 
And um, it's been a fear and a concern for a long time that we're giving up, in a sense. We're giving in, as it were. And we're accepting things that have happened to us as the new norm and as uh, something that was always, in a sense, fated to happen, should have happened. And then it's a short step to saying okay, we are in the best of all worlds. You know, let's accept it. That is somehow in the nature of things, our DNA, if you like. Somebody's used the word teleology. Tough teleology. Is it teleology or is it teleology? Teleology. I think tele is the better. So, you know, one has heard these hard phrases bandied around ontological and deontological and so on. So, I mean, the point here really is much simpler. It is, look, what has actually happened to us? Have we lost the ability to decide for ourselves? Or have we handed over the entire discourse, the entire conversation to certain agencies, authorities, or if you like, um, people with guns out there? Is it possible to have a free discourse? When you create a body like the Federal Sharia Court, which has an, an amazing jurisdiction, unknown in Islamic history. You know, the great Fukaha, Abu Hanifa and so on, they always shunned public office for this precise reason that they did not want their opinions to become law. They wanted them to remain opinions, opinions that could be debated freely in society by other thinkers, scholars, and so on. But once you create a body like the Federal Sharia Court that has jurisdiction to give binding decisions, and that's why in my article I point to the, if you like, archaeology of the Federal Sharia Court. It, it combines the American-style judicial review with stare decisis, the power of a court to give binding decisions. So now what you have is, for the first time, in 14 or 1500 years, you have three judges who can say what Islam is on a point, and it becomes binding on everybody, till that court or the Sharia appellate bench undo that judgment. So in a sense, you're snuffing out debate, you're snuffing out conversation by saying you can't take this position any longer. It's an, in, an illegal position to take, not merely an incorrect position to take. So the Sharia court's jurisdiction is a formidable one. And I would argue, and I have argued, that it has functioned to uh, empowerish our uh, conversation, the quality of our debate in the society. So, for instance, on land reforms, we could be on any side of the political divide, but we had a conversation, we had a legitimate conversation, till the Sharia court weighed in and said, you can't have land reforms, because it's not merely undesirable, it is un-Islamic. Uh, as soon as you call something un-Islamic, in a country like Pakistan, it becomes has hazardous to take a position contrary to the position declared Islamic by a court like the Sharia Court or the Supreme Court Sharia Appellate Bench, which is exactly what has happened on a number of issues. There's been uh, this question of, if you like, um, uh, the rights of the landless in an Islamic polity. The, uh, the Bhutto government had for the yeah. first time given preemption rights to landless tenants. It said that when you sell land in a rural area, People who are actually cultivating that land have a first right of refusal. They can, you know, say, look, we would uh, like to be landowners, we are cultivators, landless cultivators, but we would like the opportunity to become landowners. That um, right so is man, taken away yeah. by the Sharia court by saying that you can't give a right to preempt a sale to a, to a cultivator. This is un-Islamic. So on a whole host of issues that I point to in my piece, the Sharia court has had a kind of a, a final dispositive effect. It has brought conversations to an end. So to say that the Sharia court has been some kind of a benign distraction where Islamist ideas go to die is just factually incorrect. And that is why a corrective was needed. 
and there's nothing personal about it. So at one level, this was a factual corrective. At another level, it was also, um, uh, you know, an intervention that questioned the kind of uh, attitude that um, gave up, as if it were, on uh, what has happened in the last 30 years and uh, is telling people to be grateful in some sense for what has happened because speculatively something much worse might have happened. So why speculate at this point in time and uh, preach gratitude? That was the question that I Actually, asked. that's where I want to come in, is that mm. I'm wondering if Fessel had not phrased it in this particular manner, because this is just one subsection. All three of the writers have taken an issue to the phrasing of getting gratitude for something like this. I'm just wondering, had it been rewritten in a format that suggested that these are the unanticipated or unintended benefits of what's happened at a sort of more practical level, and it didn't have this issue that maybe we should be grateful, but rather uh, it was just, uh, you know, sort of a think piece in that, would, would the same kind of reaction been evoked? You see, as soon as you say that there's been a benefit, then you're really going back to uh, being grateful. You know, if something has been beneficial, then why should one not be grateful about it? So the point here is, has it been beneficial? Where is the evidence to say that had the Sharia court not been there, A, B, and C would have happened, which, which would have been far worse? But so I, I guess, here, yeah. The point here was that this was pure speculation. And uh, really, it wasn't um, uh, an aside, the gratitude, gratitude uh, part of the, the piece. It was quite integral to the entire purpose of the piece. The piece was saying that, look, you liberals have been misguided in your reservations or in your revulsion, however you wish to describe it, because this actually has been a benefit. Look, Justice Khosa was able to uh, ward off a particular argument by pointing people in the direction of the Sharia court. So surely this has been a good thing. Now, as Baba rightly points out, uh, you know, a remark by one judge really doesn't tell you anything about the system as a whole. And um, uh, there could have been any number of ways of warding off that, uh, you know, suggestion. The fact that he may have alluded to the Sharia court was not enough to build an entire thesis, an entire argument regarding the efficacy or the consequences intended or unintended of the Sharia court. There is far more that should have been taken into account before such, such a suggestion could have been made. So I think the, what the, what the, Salman Sab, the sort of, the way that I read this, and of course we had a, we had an exchange on social media as well on this, and then we spoke about it as well, but you know, the, I guess for me, and maybe it's also the fact that I know all of you, I mean, I know every single one that's written a piece on this, right? Like personally, and I'm a mm -hmm. great admirer of all four people. Now, Baba's in the fray as well. And so for me, this was kind of like, are you are we really misunderstanding with and you know I, I'm totally open to the charge of actually being partial to people and therefore trying to soften everybody's positions whereas actually we don't need any of that it's a, it's a robust intellectual debate and when the gloves gloves come off something you know people's hair will be messed up maybe a few buttons will be lost but in the end we'll be we'll be better for it because we would have had a robust debate I guess my question is when I read Fessel's first piece, and particularly when I read his uh, counter-rebuttal, his second piece, the sense I get from what he's saying is not necessarily that he's um, advocating gratitude, but simply that, hey, here's a thing that quite rightly, you know, is seen as a, I don't want to use a too harsh uh, a word because of the environment in which we operate, but is a problem. And it's a, quite a severe problem in terms of clarity. And for a lot of legal minds, it's, it's very clear what, what it actually means. Uh, and it's not great. And that's accepted. But beyond that 
sort of first glance look there are ancillary or you know ancillary benefits might be too much but there are positive externalities to this thing that we may need to consider just as a just as an observation like i'm not sure like i really see it as a casual observation as opposed to him sort of vigorously defending the existence and the sustenance of a parallel judicial system named the federal shadiyat court am i being am i being too soft on fasil what i don't want to frame it as you being soft or harsh but you know if you look at the fasil pieces what was the point in writing the piece the point was to say that look here are the external uh, if you like benefit beneficial externalities Now, our point was that where are these uh, beneficial externalities he in fact in the two pieces does not point to any single one of them the first piece simply says that the riba issue uh, you know has been buried there was a shariat court judgment and then there was a shariat appellate bench judgment and since then nothing has happened so this is an example of islamist ideas dying that is the only concrete example he gives in his two articles and the second article he simply says i am not enamored of land reforms in effect accepting that land reforms were a significant issue that he'd completely overlooked in the first piece but if, if we stay with the riba issue it's simply a, a wrong statement of facts as we speak the riba issue is raging you know it's actually causing a lot of suspense in this country at the moment it's been going on for the last 6 7 months before the shariat court it's come back and it never actually had died and pakistan is the only country in the entire islamic world where today this is an issue every other country has found peace one way or the other and no country has allowed this to be the subject matter of judicial debate it's taken to be a policy matter to be determined at the highest policy level and nobody else interferes with it so pakistan is keeping alive islamist agendas and i put it to you that there really are three islamist um, planks to the overall islamist uh, agenda one of which is riba the other two being um, democracy their um, you know concerns about democracy and the third is obscenity which is more a social kind of reordering of society but at the economic level which is by far the most important aspect of the islamist uh, agenda uh, the uh, issue is kept alive solely by the jurisdiction given to the shariat court and it's become a very very major issue so faisal completely ignored this and simply said the matter died in 2001 or 2 when the matter was reviewed by the shariat appellate bench and that's that so um, our point or my point is that the shariat court far from bringing islamist ideas to um, some kind of a quiet end is keeping them going and wherever matters have been resolved court and court the price that we've paid has been uh, too high for instance in blasphemy it's the shariat court that has decreed that death is the only uh, punishment that can be awarded there can be no uh, imprisonment sentence and so on then uh, i pointed to the question of inheritance it is critical vital to how society is ordered and um, the shariat court has had vital interventions in the law of inheritance i mean across the board there are at least seven or eight very major interventions that the shariat court has made but apart from the specific interventions the very idea that you have a body where three people or four people can bring centuries of debate and argumentation to an end and then the reignition of that debate will depend on that court itself deciding at some future date to allow uh, that debate to um, happen again by reviewing a judgment otherwise society now is completely handcuffed so to my mind this is a very significant event and we've given up a great deal in terms of what we can debate in society and this is what completely uh is overlooked by fasel in his uh, two pieces and as afia points out 
A parallel system does not exist in isolation. It exists in conversation. It actually impacts the rest of the system. There is no uh, watertight compartmentalization here that you create a Sharia court in its jurisdiction and then everything else is left um, pristine and untouched. There is a constant interaction. In fact, no, there is no question. I mean, this is something that we talked with Afi about, the fact that yeah. there are parallels and, you know, you're... I think absolutely right. You'd, when you have parallel systems, I mean, whatever those, whatever two systems we're talking about, we're not just talking about the traditional judicial system in Pakistan and the what we call the federal Sharia court system, if if you can call it that. In any in any situation in which you have a mainstream and you have a parallel, what you're doing is creating a robust dialectic between the two. Like yes. you, you're not, you're not. That's absolutely true. There's no. And, and the whole point of the Faisal piece was that this has somehow insulated one system for the, from the other and made the, if you like, the regular system more robust and uh, stronger than ever. He actually uses that uh, phrase, that it's now because now, of the Sharia court system stronger than ever. One thing I do want to say is that, uh, Salman, I thought your explanation was really incisive because one thing that became clear to me, in sort of these series of articles and the topic that's being debated, one of the things that Salman is pointing out is the evidence used to explain that the de facto position may be better than, you know, uh, sort of that uh, military intervention in Islamization, is that the evidence itself is not robust, at least in the case of, say, uh, the one factual position, which is there, which is riba and everything else. So I find that interesting because uh, more than what we were thinking about before, if you remember before we spoke, that it was less about evidence, but maybe more about uh, whether one should be uh, grateful for the way things are or whether there's a pure ideological position to hold, which would be more useful. But one thing I'd like to ask you is that as you know, a lawyer, somebody who's probably, you know, who's a constitutionalist, do you believe that actually maybe the legal system and maybe even the parliamentary system is probably less conservative than the way the masses would come together on certain issues? I think one could argue that, but again, the way our system is put together, the judicial system, uh, it's quite susceptible to two or three activist judges, you know, uh, running away with their own agendas. But you're right, on the whole, if you've got 150 high court judges spread across four high courts and another 17 Supreme Court judges, you do find some kind of a balance and you do find sane, rational, if you like, uh, progressive voices uh, engaging with the other more conservative uh, voices. And the judicial system as a whole, therefore, may well be uh, ahead of the uh, rest of society, as it should be in any uh, civilized society. You expect judges who've had 20, 30 years at the bar, who look to be people exposed to the world and some uh, degree of education, to be ahead of society. So that's to say nothing, really, about the judicial system. Parliament, I don't know. I think Parliament increasingly is uh, losing the capacity to stand up. Uh, and this came out in the um, uh, withdrawing of the Marvi Maimon bill regarding the minimum age of marriage. Hmm. So um, Parliament has decided that it seeks uh, uh, populism. That is how it uh, comes into existence and uh, people survive as members of Parliament. And they'll just not take on a body like the um, uh, Council of Islamic Ideology. So then the entire... do, you, do you worry, Salman, <clears throat> if you... I'm sorry to cut you off, but, uh, you know... Um... I guess one of the things that me and Fussy have been debating offline in preparation for this for this episode was, are you worried that kind of the four of you and 
kind of, I guess, me and Fussy to an extent now, and maybe there'll be a few other people who'll weigh in on this. Is this like the ban on the Titanic? I mean, here's a system mm. writ large in which a 15-year-old boy, and, and uh, let me say, like, at, on our podcast, I mean, you know, not to, not, not to sound sort of fascist about it, but, you know, we will have to edit out anything that we think is incendiary in terms of the public discourse, mm. but I'll bring it up. I mean, you have a country and a system and a society in which a village celebrated a 15-year-old boy cutting his hand off. You have a system in which a governor serving was shot up like Swiss cheese by his own guard, and you couldn't find a state-sanctioned and state-paid guy uh, to, to lead his funeral prayer. And you had the interior minister of the, of the most progressive political party in the country so asserting for that else. he yeah. would... That if that oh he didn't blaspheme but if somebody would he would kill him with his own bare hands yeah. I, you know as a as a kind of aspiring practicing muslim myself these are you know the post 911 world that we live in you know you ask a lot of questions in, in that are that are philosophical in, in in the bigger system but i mean this is where the rubber hits the road this is a this is a, these are dangerous times and dangerous issues to try and tackle and when we deal with them with the clarity and the robustness of intellect that, you know, you and Afia and Babar and, and for what it's worth, at least to me, at least, uh, you know, also Faisal and have tried course. to engage I mean, I with. I call Faisal one of our most clear-eyed uh, clear uh, commentators on uh, the state of affairs uh, that, that we face. There's yeah, no doubt and, and, and so all of you are trying to have this really sophisticated, uh, intellectually robust, uh, honest debate. And... I, I don't. I, sometimes I wonder. Just like I said, are we on the Titanic, sort of just playing the violin, kind of in 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 a sense like an honorable exit? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I mean, is that what is that what's going on? I mean, the well, other question is. is uh, sorry, if I could just add one thing, Salman, and I'd be interesting in, uh, in what you say is like just to phrase this in also in another way, and maybe this is not what you're saying, but also is that. Is the march towards like a really reactionary theocratic system almost inevitable that, uh, based on what others are saying, is that we need to take up some degree of pragmatism to see no, which no, battles okay. we can and cannot win? No, let me respond to this. Look, yes. Nobody was saying that we take up arms and bring down the Sharia court. You know, it exists there, and we accept its existence as a reality today, and we don't know how or when we'll be able to uh, do anything about it. So there was no, uh, you know, if you like, uh, sure. suggestion that, you know, we should all be going out there and bringing it down. But the point that, look, society is becoming regressive, maybe. Hmm. So what should the state institutions be doing about it? Should state institutions, in some sense, uh, reflect that regression, but, you know, at a lower degree? And would that somehow assuage society's descent into whatever it's uh, descending into, uh, I would submit, no. State institutions should try and stay clear of the descent that society is maybe experiencing. But I would even argue that if you look at various issues, for instance, uh, if you look at riba, or you look at um, uh, land reforms, or, or you look at um, you know inheritance issues where the Sharia court has intervened, none of these... Uh, issues was a political demand. There was no real political movement out there in society. These were issues created scholastically by somebody filing a petition in the Sharia court and the Sharia court taking it up as an academic issue. Or if Could you I, go back a bit just, to the, uh, the Rajam issue, 
Yes. Uh, the cutting, uh, the stoning to death, death punishment being an Islamic punishment. Now, these were not issues that society was debating or clamoring for. So the Sharia court has not only created issues, it has provided an avenue, a forum, for the most regressive ideas uh, in society or in, um, if you like, a particular segment of society to be aired and then to be accorded the dignity and the bindingness of a court judgment. There is a lot of Trojan horsing. Uh, that, yeah. that much is clear. And a lot of these Zia-era institutions became the portals through which that Trojan horsing is yeah. taking place. And then Parliament doesn't have the wherewithal, especially in 2016, post to right, actually so stand out. Happening. You see, once the Sharia court gives a judgment or the Council of Islamic Ideology renders an opinion, the political forum, that is Parliament, uh, takes a back seat. They've become extremely uh, diffident in the face of a Sharia court or a Council of Islamic ideology opinion about uh, doing anything uh, with the issues on which these two uh, four have opined. So we really have this contest, a legitimacy contest between democracy, between popular will, between pragmatism that parliament would otherwise exhibit, and the kind of internal delegitimization that the Sharia court and the Council of Islamic ideology are causing uh, of the entire system. So one Sharia court judgment delegitimizes the entire system until it is somehow set aside or uh, and it never gets buried, as we can see from the Riva issue. So, so these are really uh, more than Trojan horses. They are sources of delegitimization built into the system during uh, particularly the Zia era. The Council of Islamic Ideology, of course, precedes Zia. It was there in the 73 constitution. It was there in the 62 constitution as well and reflects the debates or the contests of the late 40s and the 50s, the anti-Ahmadi uh, rioting and so on. So there was already an Islamist, if you like, undercurrent. I'm not saying Zia alone is responsible for where we are, hmm. but the Sharia court has more teeth than the Council of Islamic Ideology. And yeah, I just want to say that was actually really interesting. And, and illuminating. Very illuminating, actually. And I'd like to thank you. Uh, Salman, uh, this has been uh, an honor and a pleasure uh, to listen to you. Musharraf told me before, I haven't uh, spoken to you before, he said that you're going to enjoy this, and I must say I really have. My pleasure. Thanks Thank so, you much so much for doing the Salman Saab. Take care of yourself. Khudafiz. Very kind. Thank you. Thank you. And welcome everyone. Once again, we have with us uh, Faisal Nakvi the person who started the devil's discourse. Is it, <laughs> <laughs> That's not a great start. Uh, Faisal, you know, the um, we've spoken to Afia, who wrote a really uh, kind of a blistering piece. Um, and then, of course, Salman Akram Raja had written one piece. You've written two pieces now. One original sort of piece that you wrote on the 10th of January. By the way, uh, listeners, on the podcast notes, we're going to have links for every single one of these articles and whatever else we can find that's that's useful. That's something that we do on this podcast. But yeah, uh, you, you wrote the original piece, and as far as we understand the argument, you basically said, hey, yeah, obviously there's some issues with the Federal Sharia Court, but in fact it actually serves some useful uh, functions. And, you know, one of them is that offers the positive externality of allowing uh, hardcore right-wing uh, activists to be able to have a place where they can vent. Um, and then you've made that argument across two pieces, so we'll let you we'll let you make that. But I have to say, when I read the f when I when I read the piece, you know, the th the thing that I thought, Fuzzy, was like, what the hell is Fessenakvi doing? Like, why would you write that piece? Like, what what is your problem? So, so I just want to add, I found it very interesting, right? I didn't 
Oh, you get to be the nice guy? I'm, I'm the nice guy in this one. Because, <laughs> because I found it interesting because I thought it was just a speculative think piece and putting ideas in. And it's an interesting because I, I, I compared it to Egypt and the Arab Spring immediately. Is that what happens when you don't have vents? How do the people react? And how do sometimes, let's say, the progressives or the liberals uh, sort of react against it and they make certain compromises? So I have a serious that. problem in that argument. You yeah. made it twice. And, yeah. and of course, I also thought that. I also thought that this was a great think piece in the sense that it puts, puts forth, what if the world was like this? Well, it's like this, and therefore the world could have been worse if yeah. it had gone that way. But let, let's let Faisal sort of defend himself here, yeah. because obviously uh, today Babar Sattar wrote a piece, and so now it's three on one. Um, what do you have to say for yourself, Faisal Lakhvi? Well, I think, first of all, if you're going to ask me to defend myself, then you need to tell me the charges against me. That's Since actually, guys, yes. Hold on a second. Since yes. you guys have robbed me of that privilege, let me try and recall what has been said, because there are three different arguments. Salman's argument was, so far as I understood it, was that, okay, yes, the federal Sharia code has been more of a talk shop than anything else, but at the same time, it has also had negative consequences, which I have not properly considered. For example, the blasphemy law, for example, the land reform case, the Kizilbashvak case. That's argument number one. No, just on that, do you agree with him? Did you, w w would it be unfair to say that there was an element of laziness or maybe, maybe, maybe laziness is too, too harsh, but uh, that you didn't consider the full spectrum of evidence before, before putting forth the hypothesis? Um, I know that Salman has done a lot more work on the Sharia court than I have, and I respect his scholarship on that as I respect his intellect. Uh, but let me at least lay out the different points and then I'll respond to them. Uh, sure, sure, of course, please. The second argument was that put forward by Afia Sherbano, and her argument was more of a slippery slope type argument in the sense that if uh, lifestyle liberals like myself, which I don't think she means in a kind sense, acquiesce in the creation of institutions like the Sharia court, then you know we are essentially giving up the right to object to things like the blasphemy law or other things that we object to. The third argument is from Babur Sattar, who puts forward a different argument, which he says that essentially sovereignty belongs in parliament, and that um, how can a Sharia court override the will of the people as expressed by a country whose parliament, uh, you know, which is 96% Muslim and whose representative institutions are 96% Muslim. Let me take those arguments one by one. So far as Babur Sattar's argument is concerned, my point is that judicial review, which is the ability to overturn a law on the basis of the Constitution, or as we've now seen in the case of the basic structure doctrine, the judge's sense of what forms the basic structure of the Constitution is a very fluffy thing. And in a country like Pakistan, it's very, very difficult to argue that the people's conception of what is Islamic should be entirely segregated from what is or should be law. So the argument that I put forward in response to Babur, which was on Twitter and hasn't been developed in the form of an article yet, <clears throat> is that you have three options. 
option number one is you can try and say, okay, we will not look at Islamic arguments because religion is an entirely personal matter. Option number two is that you treat Islam like other sources of law, and you say that normal judiciary can look at it, and you don't have a segregated judiciary like the federal Sharia court. And the third argument is... Third, third option. option, yeah. Third option is that you have a segregated judiciary which looks exclusively at Islamic law issues and then is subject to review by the normal judiciary. The point that I'm trying to make is that the liberal dream of a purely secular judiciary which reduces religion to an entirely personal issue... That's a pipe dream. That's a pipe dream. That's not about to happen in Pakistan. It's a pipe dream. It's not about to happen. And if you try and make it happen... But here, let me channel Afia for a second. If if, if you... Well, no, because it's our podcast, so we get to, <laughs> we get to interrupt people. <laughs> okay, let me finish my argument. Okay, you can, all right. You can go ahead. Okay. I'm saying that's not an option. Mm. So your second option is to try and have regular judges look at what should or should not be Islamic as part of their concept of what should or should not be law. Yeah, but now, I, I would, again, I would interrupt and say, right at that stage, Afi would say, well, why are we sort of backing down from that? I mean, Afia's position is kind of this hardcore position where that compromise in and of itself is, is a problem. Yeah. I'm just stating that as a fact for, 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 for listeners to consider in terms of just developing yeah, their own views on my this. My response to Afia would be, I am pretty much at the secular liberal extreme of a country of 200 me- people. I'm not here to impose my views on what the people of Pakistan believe. At the end of the day, it is a democracy. The people do get what they want. And what the people do want is some semblance of congruence between Islamic law and the laws that they're governed with. If you tell them forcibly, I'm sorry, what you think is Islamic is irrelevant, then the response of the people is, screw you. Who are you to tell us what we can think and can't think? If you can get the But that's not a hypothetical, uh, Faisal. I think the the counter-argument would be that that's already happened. No, hold on a second. I'm not talking about a hypothetical. If you look at the various constitutions of Pakistan, the ones which have actually been enacted, some degree, some dialogue between what is Islamic and what is or should not be law has always been part of it. And so you are not in a position to say, no, I'm sorry, we should have a constitutional order similar to that of, let's say, the United States, in which there is an absolute segregation between religion and the state. That's not an option in Pakistan. That's not the legal order that the people have chosen. So where do you I would argue. So no, but, the, but the, a lot of the, a lot of our friends, Faisal, and you know this, right? A lot of our friends would argue that right there is a capitulation, in a sense, intellectually at least, right? Because partially, actually, it isn't the people that have decided. A lot of this stuff has been the objective resolution didn't come from the people. The seventy-three constitution certainly did, but the seventy-three constitution was in many ways a victim of the objective resolution in that process. If you look at, uh, if you step back, hold on one second. Let me let me well, just make the there argument. There is no seventy-two constitution. It's an interim constitution in seventy-two. There's a constitution in nineteen seventy-three. I I thought I said seventy-three, but yeah, I, you said seventy-three. Yeah, I did say seventy-three. I've got fussy here, and we've got okay. the thing recorded. I can't hear you properly. Then. That okay. that's okay. You know, it's one. It's one between friends. Seventy-two, seventy-three. I'll Who go cares? With, exactly. <laughs> I I. I I'm happy to say does it matter? It, it doesn't really matter. I'm happy to say that I did say 72, that I'm a terrible person for saying it. I apologize. I retract my tweet that said it, yeah. and, and I say glory be to you for pointing it out. Now, let's c- continue with the, with the discussion. The point is that th- I think that one of the other arguments that we had with both, um, and this is a point on which I agree very strongly with both Afia and Salman, is that 
there's no such thing as an airtight, watertight sort of compartmentalization in which there's two parallel things that are completely divorced from each other. And in many ways, the 73 Constitution is a perfect reflection of that, that once you had the influence of whatever was inserted into the public life through the Objectives Resolution, that that then became the mainstream. And that today, whether it's Hafiz Center or it's this kid, this 15-year-old kid, that these kinds of things are a product of the public policy decisions that had nothing to do with the will of the people taken in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, 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 the, and the, the early 2000s? I would tend to disagree. My view is that the increasing Islamization of your public discourse is probably a more accurate reflection of what the public believes. It's not perhaps what I believe, but I'm willing to accept that it's a more general reflection of what the, what the people of Pakistan believe. And in any event, I think constitutions should, be, should not be taken as frozen as in a moment of time. They are subject to interpretation. They are subject to you know, social pressures. And the whole beauty of a written constitution is that interpretations of it change over time. You have to look at your political history and perhaps see, okay, maybe General Zia's reaction through a military coup was a distortion of a public response to Bhutto, but maybe there was a response to Bhutto. And you have to try and make of it the best that that constitution can be. You have to, from a jurisprudential perspective, it is, you know, you work the law pure. You have to make the constitution uh, consistent in principle. And this is, what the, this is what judges do. They take all those little bits and they try and fit them into some overall grand scheme and come up with one consistent theory. And that's a work in progress, and it remains so, so long as the more work is being done, the more vibrant your country is. Yeah, but I think one of the arguments, again, I'll let sort of Fussy come in on this as well. One of the arguments that, and again, that I find compelling that's coming from particularly Salman is, you've actually robbed society of some of that vitality because there are no-go areas that have been enabled, that the establishment of those no-go areas, those Area 52s in our public discourse, has been enabled and strengthened through the establishment of these institutions and these instruments and these mechanisms that are given the name of Islam or Islamic, but are actually, I mean, who knows what they actually are, given that, you know, the very good example that Salman Akram Raja used of the fact that none of the imams and the great fuqaha sought public office because they didn't want their opinions to become codified. Yeah. And yet what we're seeing now is some real extreme versions of codification of, of people's opinions who are not Abu Hanifa, who are not sort of uh, Imam Malik, who are not any of the great fuqaha, right? Yeah. So it's a, I mean, I think the whole thing is a slippery slope. I mean, I, I, I had a question to put to you, and this was something that um, Salman said, which I found really interesting. And what he was saying is that based on the article and the position that was taken, he had a question on the evidence. And what he meant was that maybe the only real thing that has been put in limbo for back and forth for a long, long time is riba. And that is still something that is quite alive and well when, you know, the time comes for it to be addressed properly. And that all the other things have had real-world impact. So what he was suggesting is, is that on the evidence base of what should determine gratitude, is that what has gone forth has been uh, relatively... Um, not made, benign. Yeah, it's not benign. It's made real-world impact. Would you agree with that? Uh, I didn't. 
quite catch the end of that question. Could you please repeat it? Yeah, the, the question was that, you know, the, Salman was just uh, questioning the evidence base that you presented, that the only case where there may have been a limbo for where, you know, an issue was parked was riba, but he's saying that that is still as alive as it was once before, and that everything else that um, maybe one dismissed as achievements of the federal Sharia court, they've had very real, very tangible, and in some cases, very negative consequences for the legal system. The response that I would give, well, one obvious example is Riba, but the other example is, for example, is the, the federal Shariat court has struck down a provision of the Muslim Family Laws Ordinance, which says that children of a predeceased heir can inherit. So, for example, if uh, the father has died, then the children are no longer entitled to inherit from a grandfather. The Muslim Family Laws Ordinance says that they can. That is something which is pending and has been pending for a long time, so far as I know. But my point is more that the overall structure of law that we inherited and have kept going from 1947 onwards survives as a unitary whole. There are, obviously, there are laws and there are decisions which I disagree with. But the overall structure of law has been maintained. The federal Sharia court and the ability to, the so-called ability to strike down laws and to Islamize all of them has not led to a radical rewriting of the laws. So what I'm pointing to is a, yes, there are judgments, one, two, three, four, and I'm sure Salman has pointed them out to you, but if you were to take somebody who was a lawyer in, let's say, 1948 in Pakistan, and you were to confront him with the legal system as it exists in 2016, he would still recognize it. it yeah, but that's, but, but that's a, a vessel. That's not a great, I mean, I'm not convinced by that. I have to say, because what you're saying is, I mean, are you suggesting that we should somehow be thankful to the federal Sharia court for the resilience of, the, of British common law? I mean, that's really a testament to maybe British common law, but it's also probably a testament to the inordinate power and supremacy of the administrative system that the British left behind, both in terms of the, you know, the, the CSP officers and then the DMG, and now they're called the PAS. Like, I, I'm not sure that the, the, the lo longevity... Of, of British common law in Pakistan owes its, uh, owes its existence or its sustenance or its resilience to the federal Sharia court. I guess the point that critics of your... Hold on a second. This is one argument that I presented in response. I think in part it does. I think when you have a demand, there is a social demand to a certain extent that your laws be Islamized. If you have an institution and you can point to that, it is certainly useful. I refer to at least several judgments in which judges have said, oh, look, if you want to make this kind of an argument, then go to the shared court. And it gives them the option of doing so. And they have exercised that option. And the fact is that it hasn't really gone very far in most cases. And my okay, so is, here's, hold uh, on a second. Yeah. If you don't give that, mm -hmm. if you don't give that vent, mm -hmm. where I differ from Salman and where I, I don't know about Afia and other people, is that if you don't give them that vent, I think that your legal structures are a lot more precarious than you actually consider them to be. When you look at this edifice of British common law, that you you say, oh, look, it's this huge castle, but it's actually fairly easy to bring it all down into. You could, if you allowed, for example, whole-scale Islamization of the system by the judiciary, it could be rewritten in ways that people don't know. So I'm saying, yes, it remains standing. I think this is one of the reasons that it's there, and I think... It You're saying that it was a pressure reduction uh, instrument 
that allowed no. the system to sustain itself. The, that the FSC. No, let me. Sorry. It wasn't intended as that. Let me make it very clear. Of course, no, no, no. I'm not suggesting I, you're saying, saying that. No, no. Of course, I'm of course. It was intended very clearly to destabilize the system, and it was intended by General Zia to provide him with an alternate source of legitimacy because obviously he wasn't democratic. So he latched on to the concept of, you know, okay, I'm here because God has told me to come in and bring in Islam to Pakistan. But I'm saying that if you were to go back now, look at the system as it is, does it make more sense to have a federal Sharia court type institution? Or does it make more sense to get rid of it? On balance, I would say keep it. It gives a useful uh, vent, and to the extent that there is public pressure for Islamization, it puts it through two different mechanisms, one through the Sharia court and then through the Sharia appellate bench, which allows for the maximum possible review. There is a general principle of constitutional theory of separation of powers. So you have a legislative branch, you have an executive branch, and you have then the judiciary. And the idea behind separation of powers is that things get examined at different levels, and so that ends only that which requires a consensus, where there is a consensus amongst the branches, you actually get change. So in this case, by having a division between the Sharia branch and the normal judiciary, it in essence requires a consensus between both branches to get any legal change on the basis of Islamic law. And to the extent, and I'll repeat my point, either you can exclude Islamic considerations, that's a pipe dream. If you have to deal with this pressure, how else would you deal with it? Through your liberal pipe dream of saying, oh, no, we will just ignore it because we are secular liberals. <laughs> you can try that. <laughs> it's always, it's interesting that it's a pipe dream, that, yeah. that it's not like a cup dream. Like, yeah. why is it a pipe dream? Anyway, we'll, please pipe, don't answer no, that. No, no, no. Please pipe. don't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> One is and, pipe and dream, I, that's for the left, I, and then for the right is pipe bomb dream. <laughs> no, but I gave an example as well of the two different Hisba cases. The first Hisba judgment is well known. You know, where was this? The, the, the MMA government in the frontier wanted to introduce a system where you would have essentially authorized Malvis to go around telling you to pray forcibly. Actually, that's and not really what the Hizbah system was. We can have a separate debate on that. But I just want to ask... Uh, it, was district level, it was district-level um, ombudsman, and I think that yeah. the Federation the was, ombudsman, ombudsman was going to be appointed by an MMA government, which meant that invariably they were going to be right-wingers. I understand yeah, but that. They, but If you look at their qualifications, they had to be ulama as well. Oh, fine. I mean, look, and I think that... So, so But the here's, the, here's the slippery slope. Here, ulama, I got you. No, 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 no. You've driven into a dark alley, my friend. Fez and Lefie. No, I'll tell you why. Because basically... Here's the argument that I think uh, some of the critics of your piece are going to make, and, and I sort of feel compelled to make it on their behalf. Why not the Hizbah bill? That's all, that also would be a, a vent, right? Having a an ombudsman where you can give jobs to these people. Why not that? I mean, if the federal Sharia court releases some pressure, why not release the pressure on the DMG and the PAS and the administrative system and the DCO and the EDOs by having these um, ombudsmen give them motorcycles, give them jobs, and let them run around, and you know, I mean, I think that that's kind of... The, the slippery slope argument is a really, really interesting one. Well, you see... In, I agree just with you. Hold just, on a sec. Uh, sure. I agree with you that the slippery slope argument is... It's a strong argument. But just because something is a slippery slope doesn't mean that you can't draw lines. At least for me, um, the Hizbah bill was pretty far on the other side of the line. The argument which prevailed with the Supreme Court in the first Hizbah bill was that the... Uh, ombudsman who would be empowered and who would then give personal directions, A, would be intrusion into individual freedom of religion. Secondly, 
it meant that you were giving judicial powers to people who were not the judiciary. You were so, watering down the magistracy and the sub-magistracy, yeah. yeah. No, but, not magistracy. Magistracy is another concept. Hai. The whole point of Article 175 is it used to exist. Separation. Yeah. Separation of powers, yeah. uh, you know, that could only be exercised by a judge. Right. And our, so... So the Supreme Court felt that the, that these guys having those powers would be a violation of the separation of executive and judicial authority, correct? Yes. Yeah. And what my point is, if the original, the first hit by judgment in 2005 is seen as, you know, a, a, a blow in favor of fundamental rights. But the second time the bill came around, it wasn't really that different from the first time around. There was a change in the composition of the bench. And the entire Supreme Court basically did a U-turn and, apart from one minor point, said, oh, this is fine. Now, if you had had that system, now my point, that I, I refer to that to say, look, if you want to put all of your faith into our so-called secular judiciary, it may not be as secular as you think it is. And it depends on the fact that we didn't get the... So that in, that, in that sense, Babar's piece today is kind of, uh, maybe he... In a sense, he's reinforcing at least part of your argument, right? Because he talks about the two things in Babar's piece that are really compelling. And, you know, I wish we could have taken Babar as well, but he's, 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 he's been tied up all day. One is that the, dis the distinction between transitionists and transformationists is it's a useless distinction because ultimately they're coming and, and they want the whole thing. So you can't just hand them a shard. They're, they're going to want the whole thing. The other sort of argument that he makes is the, is the one that you just made, right? No, Barber's argument was, how is it that you can acquiesce in a unelected group of people telling you the X, Y, Z law is not acceptable on something which is outside, you know, uh, which is, let's say, not strictly law. And my point to him was that the three judges sitting in the Supreme Court striking down a law or even a provision of the Constitution because they think it doesn't accord with their concept of the basic structure is as airy-fairy, as fluffy, as a Malvi or a member of the ulama telling you that a particular law doesn't accord with this concept of what is or is not Islamic. Judicial review is inherently counter-majoritarian. It overrides the will of the people. The question is, who's going to exercise that power in the whole perspective? And let me make it clear, I'm more of a small-c conservative than a liberal, is that to the extent that anybody is going to exercise any power, I want that power to be as restrained, as restricted, and as hedged in as possible. So there is going to be a power inevitably to strike down laws on the basis of Islam. That's my point number one. If that power is going to be exercised, I don't want it in the hands of the normal judiciary. I want it as segregated and as limited and as subject to judicial, normal judicial oversight because that sets up an institutional conflict which makes sure that only those laws which are grossly, let's say, contrary to Islam and can be made sense of in a, a secular world will come through those two gates. First yeah, the but the ring fencing, the I, I'm just wondering, Faisal, if the ring fencing there is as clear in, in real life as it is in the conceptual sort of framing that, that you've proposed. Yeah, but that you've give me proposed. your option. You know, all of these... No, I don't have any options. I'm not a lawyer and I'm not, you, and I'm not as smart as okay, any of you guys. You've so. just interviewed three people who have said that my my argument no, we interviewed the two. Court. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well there is Salman's piece, there's Baba's and there's Afias. What's right. the option? All three of them, so far as I understand it, are arguing in favor of an unrestricted judicial review. Um 
Probably, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think it came up, but maybe that's the inference. Well, no, but, well that's yeah, that is it, the inferior. Yeah. Well, but if you're going to criticize my perspective, what's the opposite? What's the alternative? And one of the reasons why I refer to the movement starting in 19 from the 70s onwards, there was uh, Justice Abdul Zullah. There was Justice Abdul Zullah of the Lahore. Yeah, he became Lahore, the he, he became the Chief Justice of the Federal Sharia Court later yeah. on, right? He had no. He was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Oh, of the Sharia okay, Court. okay, okay. He okay. had this whole perspective that you could throw out its English common law and basic principles of equity and use what he called Islamic principles of equity. And his movement didn't get much traction because he was succeeded by Nassim Hassan Shah. And generally, the judiciary as a whole resist, uh, resisted him. But imagine if the judiciary was there and was expressly tasked with the, you know, with the job of making sure that your laws were also consistent with Islam or with Islamic principles. Some of them might be enlightened Muslims. Some of them might be unenlightened Muslims. And I think you forget, people tend to forget the extent to which our judiciary is given this awesome power to strike down any law that they find disagreeable. So one of your arguments then is that the federal Sharia court not only serves as a vent, I mean, because that's the main one that everybody fixates on and that says, well, not really because there's all this evidence. But one of the other things that you're sort of, you know, uh, postulating is that the quality of judges that constitute our benches at the superior judiciary level and their worldviews uh, leave us vulnerable to a, a wholesale and large-scale uh, transformation of the polity at any given point in time. And that by having the federal Shariat court, you essentially have undermined their ability to individually through judicial activism islamize the system is is that is that correct uh basically yes i wouldn't say undermine and i wouldn't say that it's a comment on the quality of the <coughs> judiciary but it's more a comment on all political structures sure i mean if you go back to for example the federalist debates the question is where are you going to put power are you going to put it in the legislature are you going to put it in the judiciary are you going to put it in the president and the answer, the Madisonian answer, is you put it in all of the above. You slice it up. So the executive has power, the legislature has power, and the judiciary has power. It's separation of powers. And what I'm trying to divide is, and what I'm trying to say is, that in the case, the special power of trying to strike down law on the basis of its conflict with Islamic issues, you can either put that power as it is before the judiciary that we have, and the judiciary that we have is wonderful, but I would still, as somebody who is inherently suspicious of power, say, why don't we divide it up? Let's put it in a specialist judiciary and then have it reviewed by the normal judiciary. So, in effect, two different groups get to take a look at it. Mm. <clears throat> That's All right. my conservative yeah. argument for the federal Sharia court. Okay. I actually think your summation is quite brilliant. It makes it very clear exactly what you're arguing for right now. And I'd just like to thank you, Fessel. It was great having you and uh, very illuminating to understand exactly what your views on this have been. Thanks a lot for joining us, Fessel. Take care of yourself. Most welcome. Thank Hala you. Fiz. Hala Fiz. All right, we've come to the end of the show, and that was fascinating. I was, yeah, I was blown away by how, how smart uh, Afia, Salman, and, and Fessel are. I, I always feel like we have. We have some really high quality intellect in this country.
And what upsets me about the way that this discussion has gone, and you know, that includes Babur Sattar, I felt that there was a little bit of, uh, there's an acerbicness, there's a saltiness, and uh, there's some vinegar in, in these pieces mm. that may not intended to be personal, but it ends up being, you know, because like, basically like, accusations of just sort of being Zia's sort of, you know, carrying water for Zia or, you yeah. know, doing things like that. that yeah. That's that's not a... Gr I, don't, I don't like it. You know, I think that it undermines how intelligent the actual arguments are on all sides. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that came out really clear. I mean, I have to say that I was astounded at just how smart everyone is because I think I probably didn't even understand half the arguments because they were so nuanced and so strong. I mean, I found some of the points that, you know, Salman was making, they were really incisive about the evidence base. And that was one key element that I was trying to understand also. I do think there is a little question on what the phrasing of certain things were, because what seems to be quite strong is that people took exception to the idea of gratitude for something that just is or was or was not I think that was the, that if I had to criticism of Fessel's piece, the principal one would be that the, I thought that it, the gratitude thing, while it worked on the day that it was published, actually, if you think about the impact it has on people who are really invested in kind of, you know, a better Pakistan uh, from all sides, that telling them to be grateful for something that they're not, that they're already you know that people that are not going to be against, so it's yeah. a little bit provocative and so i guess the provocation worked yeah. because now you've had one two three three people sort of respond to it and i'm sure this isn't the end of the debate uh but we thought it would be good to give people a chance to air their you know directly to air their sort of views and, and articulate where they were in this debate i think the debate should continue absolutely i agree i hope that we can speak to all of them one day that, you know, once we have them all together. I mean, I found one last thing I'd like to say is like, you know, with Afia's argument, I thought that was also really brilliant that, you know, where does this end? Where does this stratification end? Where you're going to women's courts or some other courts, yeah, 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 legal yeah, systems. Yeah. It's yeah. actually quite fair. And I have to say that I do have sympathy most for Fessel's argument. And so basically you're a bad liberal. I'm a bad liberal because actually, but my argument is probably because it is slightly a defeatist. <laughs> uh, I, I, <laughs> it's, it's a defeatist argument, which I agree uh, in one respect is I do see that the march or the almost collective moral panic that seems to have egregiously increased over time. Um, I think that in some ways, while we're deeply unhappy with our institutions, a little bit of confusion has kept some things at bay. And I know that's not what... This is the old DMG trick, though. Exactly. And this, I think this is extremely dangerous. I agree with because, you. Because, you know what, here's... I agree with you. Look, I am taking a very convenient argument here because I actually think that some of the forces, because I do think the political forces, some are great. But, I mean, when I look at some of my favorite parties, I've seen them capitulate on things that, you know goes against their very foundation. Who appointed Molana Shirani to the council? PBP. There you go. Right? President Asif Ali Zardar. Exactly. And, and then when you... And why? That I don't know. It was one of the conditions of the Jamiyat Ulama Islam Fazlur Rahman group continuing to be part of the powerful coalition that ruled Pakistan from 2008 to 2013. That coalition was incredibly fragile in terms of its constitution and therefore every member of that coalition had enormous power 
whenever the MQM didn't like something that was happening in, I mean, frankly, you could have something happening in Mardan that the MQM wouldn't like. Yeah. And the MQM would say, hey, we're going to pull our 22 votes in, in the National Assembly and you're going to be left with a minority government that won't be able to withstand a vote of confidence. And so that's how, this is why a fragmented polity where we're more and more, that's I think where we're headed, where there'll be more political parties and there'll be more people that are swayed in multiple directions creates lesser coherence at the national level. So I think I want to explain sort of one part of my objection of why I may be siding with such a illiberal argument is because I do love democracy, but I have a fear of majoritarianism. And I fear what I see in this country is majoritarianism for the most part, whereas some of the ideas behind the liberal democracy is actually putting a curb on what the majority wants. You're very dark today, and I would. Uh, here's my effort to, to sort of lighten up your day. Yeah. How many governments have right wing political parties been able to form in this country's history? If we include the PMLN? If you really think the PMLN is a right wing government. Yeah, yeah. Before the 90, uh, before the 2000s, definitely. No, absolutely not, man. The, the PMLN has. PMLN, PMLQ, they've all had. There's only two sort of. Uh, there's on, only two uh, deities. No, dream of there's being a, yeah, that was all. Yeah, I, I mean, my sense is that the PML, the PMLs, whatever version you have, they have sort of two deities: mm. power and money. Yeah. And so wherever the sort of, I mean, you know, I, I really broad-based, clearly articulated, radical right-wing worldviews are owned by. The Jamaat Islami, the Jamaat Ulama Islam, Fazur Rahman group, the JUI, uh, Samuel Haq group. There used to be something called the JUP Nurani group, which and and they were quite, relatively speaking, because they were Barelvi, they were they were very different from some of the other sort of more Deobandi uh, leaning groups. Those parties have never really been able to win much of anything electorally. Your fear your fear of majoritarianism, at a at, at a street level is understandable because of some of the things we've seen in this country. But your fear of majoritarianism in, in formal institutions isn't, the, it, it isn't backed up by the evidence. The one thing that where I think you and I are probably on the same page is that there is an element of cowardice in terms of power and how power is exercised in this country when it comes to facing up to and staring down the bullying of the state. And this isn't about Islam or Islamic principles or liberal principles. First of all, I, I really, one of the reasons I don't like anyone calling me either an Islamist or a liberal is because, like, those words mean different things to different people. And why can't you be a really good Muslim and a really good liberal? Like You can. That, well, everybody says that, but, yeah. but, but the way things get framed in Pakistan, we end up pushing people to choose one of these labels. And it's, it's not a fair... In Pakistan, you, we cannot expect people to give up their religion. And this is the part where I agree with Faisal, that we have to live in the world that exists. And if we're genuinely sort of pretending to be playing the violin on the Titanic, then we're idiots. Because the thing we should be looking for is not a violin, it's a life jacket. So here is, I mean, one last way of framing what I've just said. And this is something I'm not proud of, as I've mentioned before as well. But I think, I think my fear of majoritarianism here has to do with the majority that is peaceful but is pre-radicalized to some degree because there are a number of ideas that set you on the slippery slope. But this majority, while they may not want or to desire or want to push the laws that would necessarily create that thing, they are, forget 
the political structure, but they're also at the mercy of these small groups. If these small groups of extreme right and incredibly, um, let's say, um, uncompassionate people who say, of course, that they're looking for a larger worldview, everyone else capitulates. It's like when you're sitting in a group of 12 people, you're trying to have, say, a semi-rational conversation, but the moment somebody brings in a very forthright, let's say, religious view, it tends to actually, rather than spur the discussion, actually finish it, because right now the repercussions are so strong. And I'm almost, I'm almost at a state where, even though I'm unhappy with my country the way it is, I feel that I really want to preserve it this way because I think that it tomorrow might, get might worse. be. Yeah, yeah. I think and that's that, a bad argument to make, but that's the. One I, I don't happened. think it's. I, I don't think we should be shy of being pragmatists. I, I politically I always, you know, I think it's important. I don't know if labels are useful, but I think it's important for me to just always sort of claim the center. And I think it's an interesting argument that Barbara made today, which is that where is the center? Is the yeah. center sliding? That's a, that's a tricky one. I, I wouldn't agree with Babur necessarily, but I'd, I'd really choose my words carefully if in disagreeing with him in that conclusion, right? That if you have a sliding scale that over a course of two or three decades, you know, which is our adult lives, right? You know, potentially 20, 30 years, where you go between the ages of like 25 and whatever, 30, 55, right? So that's your core productive adult years. It's when financial decisions are important, so riba is actually a consideration. If you're really, if you're like me, you you really do think about what you know, what kind of how you earn your money. Um, and I think we all we all do. I mean, some people call it riba and interest, but you know, we all have we have a relationship with economics that has a moral dimension. Everybody does, whether it's defined or sprinkled with religious terminology or not. You are most people, a lot of people, especially in Pakistan, are parents. In that, in that sort of, during that time period. So they're also concerned about the moral compulsion of raising children within a moral code and framework that is consistent with their beliefs and will enable them to be successful in the future. So these issues aren't, ex they're, they're, not, they're not foreign issues. These are issues that we have to contend with at a, at a very personal level and then build outwards. And I think what a lot of us are trying to do, uh, I think a lot of Pakistanis that, you know, are not sort of participating in the public discourse every day, like maybe you and I are, we all are struggling with this, right? Like, what's the right balance? What's the equilibrium between personal beliefs that, you know, maybe in ma many ways very conservative and may s seem jarring to somebody if we shared them with somebody? Should we say everything we believe? I mean, this is another debate yeah, that we were yeah. having, right? Yeah. Like, should you say everything that comes into your head? And this is something we discussed in the pilot episode as well. Yeah. Please don't. Please <laughs> shut your mouth, right? Please, tamiz kar lo. Exactly. Just shut. Like, no, dude. If you only have uh, foul language and invective to share, if you only have accusations and and uh, allegations that aren't backed up by anything, but you're just angry about thing X and you want to take it out on thing Y, don't. Because it vitiates the atmosphere. It makes things more difficult. It gets people's backs up. We are in a state in our society, globally, locally, nationally, in every way, where we need to we need to come together. We don't have to agree about everything, but we have to be able to talk to each other. And I think this podcast yeah. was really about sort of demonstrating, and I think they did an amazing job. They were so articulate, and they were so polite. And, and they were so respectful Credit of each other. And I just want to add one last thing, which I think is incredibly important. They were, I mean, the respect given to one another despite 
very differing opinions and a very differing worldview as well. One of the things that I found is like increasingly as maybe as one gets older or one understands the system more or where we live is that you find yourself moving to the center not because your ideological position has changed but maybe because you're reevaluating what can or cannot be achieved or how will you achieve it. But I find that this difference over here at least between the center and the left is one that should not become exceedingly adversarial because you see the left in it all its honesty <laughs> yeah it, all its honesty is what keeps a check on everyone else before you make too many compromises it it's you know it's and the, we need those voices you need those voices yeah. they are very important I mean, this is a point that yasser latif uh, hamdani made today at his book launch it's yeah. a collection of his essays and his articles that you know you do need the pure the puritanicals and the absolutists or the maximalists Absolutely. to continue to articulate those positions and maybe you agree in principle with some of those ideas but maybe you and I have chosen to be more pragmatic in terms of how we put across those ideas because we know that our audiences are coming from all kinds of different places and if the objective is to actually get headway and really make things happen then we got to bring people together because just articulating your really hardcore opinion and putting it in people's face it won't get that done. That doesn't mean that there shouldn't be people in our society that are doing that. So I think it's a real credit to this society and to our polity. And I always say to Qadi Azam that, you know, you have people who are going to be taking those maximalist uh, positions. Uh, well, I think the maximalist position and the centrist both, the advantage is the maximalists, they become unpopular for their opinions because they're a minority in this respect. Yeah. And you have to think about how great a service they do to their country, which is not... I'm all for it. Yeah, which is to earn the ire of their countrymen, but they argue and push the agenda of their countrymen forward. And the thing for the... The advantage to the centrist is we can become lazy. We can become... Because they're uh, out there doing the hard work. They're doing some of the hard work. They're also... It's also that sometimes maybe we take one too many compromises just because... We think that, you know, it's not practical. So there's going to be an inherent um, tension in this process, but I think both serve each other well, and that's quite important. Sure. As yeah. long as, I mean, I really do think that it can and should be symbiotic. I sometimes feel that maximalists have, uh, which is quite natural, have the, the benefit of a moral superiority yeah. that, that yeah. really needs to be right up there because it's not compromised right yeah but it's but, but the question is maybe they don't think about effectiveness right the question is that where can i feel most comfortable yeah but what's the point of an idea that doesn't i mean, I mean again we get into the whole debate then between the center pragmatist and the, yeah. and the sort of you know the left-leaning sort of whatever you want but in whatever. my worldview both serve an essential function oh. Absolutely, but this, this in and of itself is a compromise. Once again, we're not choosing a side, which, <laughs> which a lot of our friends want us to, right? Yes. They want us to say, God damn this, <laughs> you know? And uh, no, man, like, uh, let's, let's try and build together, but remember that we have a... Look, one of the things that's really important uh, and interesting, right? I, I don't know how long this has gone on, but... It's know, gone I'm, on, I'm... like, way long. <laughs> like, somebody needs to be, like, a real fan. <laughs> 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 this is a test of uh, this is a test of our listeners, yeah. but I don't know. I'm having fun. I mean, look, yeah. I think that one of the other things that we haven't touched is, and I think it's an important part of this discussion, which we 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 haven't had yet, 
where's the guy that's robustly defending the federal Sharia court? Like, not the way Faisal is, because he's not really defending it. Yeah. He's saying, well, thank God this is there, because actually, you know, things are really crazy, and they'd be even crazier if yeah, it wasn't exactly. there. He's saying that. But there are a lot of people in Pakistan who are probably thinking, uh, yeah. you know, we want, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to uh, cast aspersions on, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't use Punjabi. Maybe yeah. if I, if I could speak Pashto, I'd do it uh, in Pashto, right? Uh, maybe you should do it in Pashto. Yeah, yeah like yeah. we really need it and yeah. it should be the only supreme, there are people out there. And what I find interesting about our English language discourse is that it's like we pretend just because they don't exist in our living rooms and mm -hmm. we don't like we don't go to school with them, we don't hang out with them, we don't talk to them, we don't pray with them, we don't go on umrahs with them, whatever it is, we don't go on tabligh with them. Then, and and it really is them. Then, that doesn't mean that they don't exist. Yeah. And like, where's the conversation between us and them, as all of us, as yeah. all Pakistanis, right? I don't mean to, like you know the point isn't to sort of you know uh, limit the. Possibly the damage that that all of this has done uh, to to our state and in in directly then therefore also to our society. But now that we are where we are, and this is again the Fessel sort of approach, right? Which you agree with as well. We are at point X in 2016, right? If we're going to move forward, can we pretend that so many people don't exist and that their opinions don't exist and that they don't get really angry about people claiming a space that? They really have no grounds claiming. Like uh, liberals in in general, what space do they have in this country? I, I agree. I think one of the things also, which is the critique that comes from positions uh, such as what we're discussing or what Fessel was discussing, and this may be unfair, but it is, if you're willing to live with this, and tomorrow you see a pragmatic reason not to have democracy for a while, that is this just another version of you know. Doctrine of necessity. necessity. Yeah. Right? Are we there? Right? Now, I will say a hundred things against it. But if you look at it, the question I think that some of the others put, whether Salman Akram Raja or Rafi Sherbani, is like the slippery slope argument is like, where do you stop? Why have you decided this is okay? Yeah, that, that's right? what I was asking Faisal, right? Yeah, is it like, what, what stops? Like on the Hizba bill, which yeah. is an example. I mean, the Hizba bill is a great example of why not? You know, yeah. let let some let yeah. some bros blow off some steam, right? And, and, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's a question. Like we don't have. Se dande shande maarenge, sab yeah. ho like I mean, I I think yeah, it's it's like a, we've rationalized for ourselves. Yeah, this absolutely. Is not this the is doctrine a, of necessity. We're better than that. Yeah, yeah, of course. And this we're just really good analysts, analysts who've realized that this is where we say this is the line, right? But <laughs> <laughs> this is like our egos all over. So the question is valid. Yeah, it is absolutely valid. And I think, again, I think, thank God, there's there's the Afia Sherbanos in yeah. our discourse yeah. to kind of call that, yeah. uh, you know, for whatever it is, even if sometimes it'll be, like, it'll be splat on our face. Inconvenient. Well, no, not inconvenient. Splat. She won't care. And I think that's the whole point, is I think we have to have those voices. Yeah. We absolutely need those voices in our discourse, yeah. even if they are voices that, like, sometimes, as you said, inconvenient or yeah. splat on the face. Yeah. Whatever, man. Like, <laughs> roll with the punches, bro, because yeah. it's a big country, and we need all kinds of different voices. And you just hope the next morning you can shake hands. Absolutely, yeah. That's what it really comes well, to. Well, I guess it. we'll find out, but, you know, I mean, Afia's in Karachi, Faisal's in Lahore, 
Salman's in Lahore and yeah. Babur's here in Islamabad. We're in Islamabad. Yeah. Um, so we'll have to start with Babur yeah. uh, and thank him for not being on the show today and then and then uh, take it from there. Like, I mean, four-hour podcasts don't work. Actually. <laughs> 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 All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you. Uh, and uh, yeah, just hit us up with your feedback. Please also on iTunes, for those of you that are subscribers, if you could go and put in a review and just give us a bunch of stars, that'll be great because it'll help uh, move this thing along and get us uh, more more listeners. And that will hopefully improve the quality of what we do because the more we hear from you, the more we'll know what, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, and what we could do better. Absolutely. So thank you, everyone, and hope you have... Till we a good time till we meet next. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.